0: And took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now, when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have wrestled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved, Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would teach us to wrestle with the right person. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. I got a very simple message for you today. It almost, it almost, it's so simple, I, I'm almost ashamed to preach it. It's just simple. You've been wrestling with the wrong person. You've been wrestling with the wrong thing. All of us are wrestling, but most of us are wrestling the wrong wrestling match. You're in the ring with the wrong Hulk Hogan. You should be wrestling, but just not in the ring that you're wrestling in. You should be wrestling, but just not with the person you're wrestling with. If you study the life of Jacob, what you discover is that Jacob was a wrestler. He was a wrestler from the moment of his birth. Even the process of his birth was a wrestling match. Jacob was in the womb wrestling with his brother Esau. He was constant. I mean, Ishmael. He was, yeah, Ishmael. I I get mixed up. Esau, I was right the first time. See, that's what happens when you second guess yourself. (laughs) That Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau. He was in the womb wrestling with Esau, his brother. And Esau was born first. And the first part of Jacob that came out of the room was his hand. And he grabbed his brother's heel on the way out. He's like, I'm not done with you. I'm not done wrestling with you. I'm not done fighting with you. And it was a prophetic act because he would be wrestling with his brother Esau for their whole lives. And when his parents saw that he had reached out and grabbed his brother's heel, they named him Jacob, which means one who grabs the heel, which means man wrestler. You're the guy who wrestles with man. Now, Jacob and his brother Esau were a lot different from one another, as brothers tend to be. I've got two brothers. All three of us are different. Esau was a gangster. A real one. He was a thug. He was out there like killing animals and like, I mean, he was running them streets. He was a thug. But Jacob was a hustler. Jacob was a con man. Jacob was conning people and Esau was killing people. Jacob was about taking your money. Esau was about taking your life. And you didn't didn't want to mess with either of them. Because if you ran into Jacob, you were going to come up broke. Something was going to turn up missing in your life. And if you ran into Esau, you were going to turn up missing. And so all Jacob's life, he had this philosophy of finding a way to get what I want. Finding a way to take what I need. If there's something I need that I don't have, I'm going to find a way to get it. In other words, Jacob grew up with this philosophy, you know, the, the whole philosophy that God helps those who help themselves. So I'm going to help myself, whether you invite me to or not. I'm going to help myself to your stuff. I'm going to help myself to your money. I'm going to help myself to your daughters. Uh-oh. That was Jacob's philosophy. I'm going to help myself. I'm going to find a way to get what I want by any means necessary, and Jacob had wrestled with men for his whole life. And if you go back and read the story of Jacob, you'll see what I'm talking about. But now at this place in Genesis 32, Jacob hits a moment in his life where he realizes that he can no longer win this battle by wrestling with men. He's getting ready to meet his brother Esau, whom he has not seen in years, whom he fled the country to get away from because Esau had already declared openly and publicly, next time I see Jacob, I'm going to choke him until he quits kicking like it's done. He, he had already made, and, J, and Jacob knew I have swindled him for the last time. <laughs> yeah. I, I cannot win this match by hustling and swindling and conning and cheating anymore. The next time I meet Esau, it's not going to be a battle of wits. It's going to be a battle of knives and fists. And Jacob realized that I am no longer equipped to fight this battle on my own. He knew that if God does not intervene tonight, my brother is going to kill me and my whole family tomorrow. How many know that's a desperate situation? That's a desperate situation. Have you ever been in a desperate situation? Some of you are in a desperate situation right now, just not desperate enough. We'll get to that. Foreshadow. The way to know if the situation is desperate enough or not is have you started wrestling with God or are you still wrestling with men? Yeah. If you're still wrestling with men, you still think you can do it by your own power. Right. You're not desperate enough yet, yeah. which means it's going to get darker before it gets brighter. Mm-hmm. I know. I'm so sorry. The last several messages I preached haven't been very encouraging. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to get worse. <laughs> it's going to get worse before it gets better. Why? Why? Because the purpose of the trial is to bring your desperation to the place at which you acknowledge from the depth of your being that the only way through this is if I deal with this between me and God. This is the place the disciples came to on the boat the week before last that we talked about, where they were wrestling to try to get the water out of their boat so that the boat did not sink. Probably shouting across at Jesus to try to wake him up. You cannot shout Jesus awake. (laughs) At a certain point they realized we can either keep struggling to get the water out of our boat or we can stop all of our struggling and turn to Jesus with all of our attention. And at the moment they put their buckets down and said either Jesus saves us or we're done. And they went to Jesus together and woke him up. At that moment, that's when the breakthrough transpired. That's when Jesus arose. If you're still at the place where you're trying to use your own buckets to get the water out of your boat, you're not yet desperate enough to have a Jacob moment that he had at the fort of Jabbok here. Jacob was desperate and he was at the breaking point of desperation. And at that breaking point of desperation, what transpires in our lives is that we sanctify ourselves, which means we set ourselves apart. Jacob goes to the the fort of Jabbok and he takes his wives and children and sends them across the brook. Takes his servants and sends them across the brook. And then he takes all of his belongings, all of his flocks and herds and all of his money and all of his clothing and everything that he had and sent it across the brook. And then they're like, you coming? He goes, no, I'm not coming. You guys go over there and pitch a tent and just hang out tonight. I'm like, what about you? I got some work to do over here. He put everything, that, all of his relationships, all of his agendas, all of his possessions, all of his projects, all of his hopes and dreams, all of his desires, and put it on the other side of the river. And they said, what are you doing? He said, I'm about to wrestle with the right person. I'm about to wrestle with God. God will show up for the wrestling match when he sees that you're ready to have it. Jacob was finally ready to have it. You know when you're going through a trial, but you're so discouraged in the midst of that trial that you feel like you can't pray? You ever experience that? You know what I'm talking about? Because I know what you guys think, like you think, you know, he probably, when he goes through a trial, he just wakes up at 5 o'clock in the morning and just prays through it. Nah. Sometimes when I go through a trial, I'm so discouraged, I can't pray. I'm like, you know what? And, and I find myself searching my heart to try to figure out, why can't I pray? Like, God, what's wrong with me? How come I can't pray? And, and I find myself in that place of prayer where I'm trying to pray, but my mind is wandering off. What's happening is I'm trying to pray, but my mind is wandering towards my buckets. Like, what, what new bucket? Can I get a bigger bucket to get more water out of the boat? Yeah. My mind is wandering to try to, fix the, to try to figure out. I'm still trying to figure out how to fix the situation on my own. Yeah. And I, I'm not yet at that breaking point where I can turn to God with all of my heart. And you say, well, I just don't have enough discipline. You know why I don't have enough discipline is because I'm not yet at my breaking point. If you were in an airplane 35,000 feet in the air and both engines died and the plane went into a nosedive, guess what? Suddenly you are an expert. You are a prayer warrior. Everybody on the plane, atheists would be speaking in tongues. Why? Because it's desperate. You can't be sitting on, you're not going to be sitting on that plane going, man, God, I can't even pray because I don't think you hear me. You better hear me. You know what I believe God does is he lets the engines go out on our plane and lets us go into a nosedive. He turns off the external engines in our life so that he can turn on the internal engines of our prayer life. The problem is the engines are off inside, but as long as the engines are on outside. As long as there's no external crisis, there's no internal motivation to seek the face of God. And God can't actually take you into your destiny until he takes you to a place of desperation where the engines go off outside so that the engines can go on inside. And here's what I truly believe happens. The engines go off on your plane and your plane goes into a nosedive and and we just kind of sit there and we're going down, and the engine doesn't turn on inside. So here's what God does. He doesn't want the plane to crash, so he turns on the engines again, and the plane recovers. Yeah. But then God says, i got to turn off the engines again in a couple hours. Yeah. Like, we got to revisit this trial, yeah. because she's not desperate enough yet. So then the engines go off again, and we go into a nosedive, and we start to wake up a little bit, turn the engines back on. Your trial is going to repeat until the engines turn on on the inside. Mm -hmm. Why? Because God's trying to take you somewhere that he can't take you with an external engine. He's trying to take you somewhere in the spirit that only an internal engine can take you. He wants you to rise up on wings as eagles, but he's he's got to turn on the engines of your prayer life. The engines of your desperation and bring you to the place where you recognize how desperately you've always needed him. You see, a crisis is not a moment in which we suddenly need God. A crisis is a moment in which we suddenly realize that we need God. That's the beauty of the crisis. Is that it confronts us with something that was true long before the crisis. We always needed God. I just didn't know I needed him until the engines of my life turned off and my life started to go into a nosedive. Downward. Jacob sanctifies himself. He puts everything on the other side of the river and leaves himself alone with God. And it says a man wrestled with him. Later he, later he realized it was God wrestling with him. Wrestling with god now ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against powers and principalities against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places against the rulers of the darkness of this age and then it says therefore put on the whole armor of god so that you can stand in the evil day and having done all to stand stand therefore having put on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation and The uh, sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel, praying always with all prayer and petition, being watchful unto this end. There's a difference between wrestling, it's interesting. There's really two kinds of wrestling matches. You wrestle against the devil, but you wrestle with God. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between wrestling with and wrestling against. You don't wrestle against God. You wrestle with God. Mm -hmm. And you don't wrestle with the devil. You wrestle against the devil. Mm -hmm. And the problem is some of us are wrestling with the devil and wrestling against God. (laughs) And what's the difference? When you wrestle against, it's a wrestling of resistance. When you wrestle with, it's a wrestling of surrender. Jacob was wrestling with God because he wanted so desperately to surrender to God, but realized that there was some internal stuff that was preventing his complete surrender. The reason I wrestle with God is because I cannot by my own power come to a place of complete surrender to him. I know there's stuff in my life that I need to surrender to God, but I don't know how to surrender it. That's when I need to wrestle with God. I wrestle with God, not because I'm trying to take something from him, but because I'm trying to surrender something to him. I'm wrestling to God because I'm coming to him and I'm saying, God, by my own power, I can't fix this. Without your help, I'm lost. I need your help. But I'm wrestling against the devil because I'm wrestling not to give him a single inch of space in my life. I'm wrestling against the devil when I recognize the work of the devil and I'm making a decision. You get no space. I'm not giving you an inch because if you give him an inch, he will take a mile. And if you give him a mile, he'll take your whole life. I'm wrestling to surrender. I'm wrestling because everything inside me says I need to fix this by my own power. When I'm wrestling to take something from God, I'm wrestling against him. Meaning, I'm believing that it's his will to withhold something from me. And so I'm praying to try to convince him to do that which is in opposition to his will. My daughter, uh, my wife has been teaching her scriptures and uh, a week or a couple weeks ago, the scripture that my wife taught her was this verse here out of Genesis 32 where Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So my daughter had just memorized that. I will not let you go unless you bless me. So the next day, my daughter comes to me and says, Daddy, can you take me to get boba? I said, not right now, baby girl. She goes, Daddy, please take me to get boba. I said, baby girl, we ain't going to get no boba right now. She goes, Daddy, please take me to get boba. I said, baby girl, I was tired. And we ain't got, I ain't, ain't nobody got time to be going to get no boba right now. And suddenly she flung herself around my neck and said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. (laughs) So we went to get boba. (laughs) It's like, how's she going to use the word of God against me like that? That wasn't right. I almost put Kendra out the church last week. You remember last Sunday I talked about You know, uh, Jeremiah 12, where he said, Lord, I can't handle this. And the Lord said, if you can't run with the foot soldiers, what what are you going to do when the horses come? Uh After service was over, I said, Kendra, I'm so tired. And she goes, if you can't run with the foot soldiers, what are you going to do when the horses come? I said, yeah, you need to find you another church. (laughs) I ain't going to use my own word against me like that. just wasn't right. wasn't right. But my daughter wasn't right. Because when she said that, she was trying to get something from me, not surrender something to me. When we cry out to the Lord, I will not let you go until you bless me. I will not let you go unless you bless me. We we need to apply that prayer to our desire for surrender. And surrender is simply at the very place in life where I recognize that I cannot break through this trial by my own power. I need God to break through by his power. And God, what I need you to break through in my life is this deep-seated human insistence that I can make it on my own. Because in my flesh, what I desire is for God to give me the power to succeed by my own strength. Increase my strength so that I can succeed by my own strength. And that's the opposite of what God wants to do. In actuality, what God wants to do is to take us to a place where our strength has been depleted so that we can see God break through on our behalf by his strength and not by our own. What was the most powerful moment in human history? What was the moment in human history in which the greatest power had ever been released? The greatest moment of victory, the greatest display of strength was the cross of Jesus Christ. The place at which Jesus had surrendered everything. It was his greatest moment of weakness when he was nailed to a cross between earth and heaven with nails in his hands and feet and a crown of thorns on his head where he had surrendered and was experiencing the greatest moment of human weakness that was simultaneously the greatest moment of divine power. Because number one, the idea that you could kill God. <laughs> right? What? It took more strength for him to remain on the cross than it would have taken for him to come down. Mm-hmm. Coming down would have been easy. Remember the thief on his right said, if you, you know what? If you're so strong, if you're so great, save yourself. You who open the eyes of the blind, can't you save yourself and us? And he said, don't you, don't you get it? I could call legions of angels right now. Wow, legions of, I'm, all I got to do is whistle and every angel will empty heaven and fill the earth okay. and pull me off this thing. Don't you realize that it takes me more power to stay here and die than it would take me to come down off? Don't you realize that it would be easier for God to release you from the trial than it would be for him to strengthen you in the midst of it? Yeah. The strength to remain on the cross came from the knowledge of what was coming through the cross. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. The cross was the place where he triumphed over powers and principalities and made a public spectacle of them. The cross was the place of his greatest victory and it was sealed in his resurrection. And this is why Paul says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But not only that, in Romans chapter 5, he says, we also glory in tribulation. Mm -hmm. Why do we glory in tribulation? Because we know that tribulation produces patience and patience, hope. And hope maketh not a shame because the love of God has already been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Paul says, I glory in tribulation because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I glory in my weaknesses because it is at the point of my deepest weakness that the point of God's greatest strength is made manifest in my life. Jacob wrestles with God. And the scripture says, and this is what's interesting, when the man saw that Jacob wasn't going to let go of him, he reached over and touched the socket of his hip. God broke Jacob's leg that's jacked up imagine you're in prayer and all of a sudden you get up and you're like oh, oh. <laughs> what kind of prayer meeting was that <laughs> and it said Jacob walked with a limp for the rest of his life you know what the purpose of prayer is it's for God to break you in the place of your pride it's for God to break you with an incurable wound in the place where you think you can do it on your own If you could see the way an overcomer walks, an overcomer always walks with a limp. I always know when someone has wrestled with God and prevailed because they walk with a limp. In the place where the average person would walk in pride, they walk in humility. Where an average person would toot their own horn, they're tooting God's horn. You can't get them, you can't get them to proclaim their own greatness. Why? Because they've already seen the depth Of their own brokenness they've already come to the place where they recognize that without him i can do nothing absolutely nothing and then after the wrestling match is over okay your leg's broken jacob's like i will not let you go unless you snap oh okay it's done then the man sits down with jacob and says so what's your name he goes my name is one who grabs the heel my name is Man Wrestler. And, and God says, no, 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 no. That's not your name anymore. You, you're no longer Jacob. Your name is now Israel, which means prince of God. He says, your name is now Israel. Your identity has changed. You're now prince of God. Why? Because you have wrestled with God and with men in that order. The order, it doesn't mean that you don't have to wrestle with men anymore. It doesn't mean that you don't have to care about human relationships. You simply have to prioritize your relationship with God over every human relationship. You simply have to determine that this is first and foremost about me and God. See, the problem with some of you is you're wrestling with your wife, but you're not doing any wrestling with God. Mm. And that's why you keep wrestling with your wife. You're wrestling with your husband but you're not wrestling with God. You're wrestling with your brother or your sister or your mama or your daddy or your boss or your coworker or your friend or your cousin or your auntie. You're wrestling with the wrong people but you don't spend any time wrestling with God. You'll stand on the phone, you'll sit on the phone and argue with some person for 2 hours. You won't spend 2 minutes praying about that conversation. Yeah. You're wrestling with the wrong person because you have not yet discovered that what you say to God about people is far more powerful than what you say to people about God or about one another. You're wrestling with the wrong people. I, I remember when my mother and my father, their relationship was on the rocks and my father was in, was barely in the home and, and it was a time in which it seemed like their marriage was going to come apart and I remember my mother told me later that the pastor of her church told her, divorce him and let him go. But something in her heart said, no way. And she went home that night. My dad was out running the streets, whatever he was doing. She put my, me and my two little brothers to bed and she went into the living room and she got out her Bible and opened it up And she cried out to the Lord all night long. I could hear her in there weeping and crying and calling out to God. And I came out and said, Mommy, are you okay? She said, Don't worry, son. Everything's fine. Go back to bed. And she smiled at me, but tears were still running down her cheeks. And she kissed me on my forehead and put me back to bed and then went back to crying with the Lord. She knew how to wrestle with God all night long. And I remember many a night hearing my mother in the living room crying out to God and, de- and, and yelling at the devil, you ain't taking my husband. You're not destroying my family. My children are not going to grow up without a father. You're wrestling with the wrong person. You say, I can't fix my marriage. Of course you can't fix your marriage. What, what, why, you know, you're just now figuring that out? <laughs> The problem is you thought you could. I just can't work it out with my boss. Well, then get on your knees and wrestle with God all night before going back to work tomorrow. Greatest problem in our contemporary American church is that we have lost the art of travail. We've forgotten how to pray we're the microwave generation, we're the Burger King church, the Burger King Christian, it's gotta be my way right away. Mm -hmm. And I'm so easy to overcome by the devil. He just has to come and flick me (laughs) and I topple over. The devil is not scared of the average contemporary American Christian. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, he's very friendly with the average American Christian because we're actually wrestling with the devil instead of wrestling against the devil. You're wrestling with the devil when you're struggling to make space in your life for stuff that the devil is trying to bring against you. You're wrestling with the devil when you're trying to make a treaty with oppression. When you're just trying to decide, well, I guess this is the thorn in my flesh. I guess this is just the way I am. You're wrestling with the devil when you say, well, you know, you got an anger problem. No, I'm not. That's just my personality. And, you know, people around me just need to kind of just accept me for who I am. You know what you just did is you just made a treaty with the devil. But when, when God comes and tries to bring you some humility, you're resisting that. When somebody tries to bring a word of correction into your life from the Lord, you resi- you're, re- you're wrestling against God, but you're wrestling with the devil. Your whole life is about trying to make space wow. for the attack of the devil in your life. Make space for the devil who's actually coming to destroy your family and destroy your fortune and destroy your future. But God who, the, listen, the scripture Jesus said, the enemy comes not but for to steal, to kill... And to destroy. There's only three reasons the devil comes to your life. Number one, he wants to steal from you. Number two, he wants to kill you. And number three, he wants to destroy you. When he steals from you, he takes from you. Stuff that belongs to you, he takes from you. When he kills you, he kills you. He destroys you. But when he destroys, he destroys everything that you've built and everything that is connected to you. Do you realize that the devil doesn't just want to take your money, he wants to destroy your whole family? Yeah, yeah. You got to decide who your enemy is. That's good. And if you let him steal, you say, "Well, you know, yeah, he came and took my peace. But I guess I'm just an anxious person." No. He came and took my rest. He came and took my joy. He came and took my hope. He came and took my expectation he came and took my love if you let him steal from you he will kill you for the devil stealing is a prelude to killing and if you let him kill you he will destroy your whole family killing is a prelude to destruction jesus said the thief comes not but for to steal to kill and to destroy but i have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly, one translation says, to the full, another translation says. Actually, the more abundantly one is a better translation because what it actually means is excessively. Yeah. Meaning, excessive is more than is necessary. Mm-hmm. Typically, when something is excessive, it's bad. <laughs> excessive drinking, that means drunkenness. Mm-hmm. Excess- excessive eating, that leads to... Uh, being overweight. Anything you do excessively is typically a bad thing. But Jesus said, I came that they might have life and that they might have it at at an addictive level. Like that they might just be like just completely stoned, addicted, like lost. Like I'm just addicted to the life of Jesus Christ. I can't get enough of it no matter how much I get. I need more of a Jesus. That's why I came. That they might be addicted to life. That they might have zoe's, life. Two kinds of life, by the way, in the Bible. There's suitcase and there's zoe's. The first kind of life is the biological life. Mm-hmm. Your breathing. That they just might be alive. And the second kind of life is that fullness of joy. And overwhelming sense of meaning and destiny. Jesus said, he didn't say I came that they might have suitcase. That they just might breathe. He said, I came that they might have zoes, that overflow of divine life. Some of us are satisfied with just suitcase. I'm breathing. As long as I'm breathing, I'm I'm still breathing. I'm doing okay. You know what? There are days like that. As long as you keep a vision in your mind and heart and say, but you know what? I'm going to go beyond breathing. Jesus came that I might have life and that I might have it to the full. This is what's crazy. All Jacob wanted was just don't let my brother kill me tomorrow. (laughs) That's all he wanted. When he said, I will not let you go until you bless me, what he was saying is if you don't intervene tomorrow, my brother's going to kill me and my whole family. Just don't let me die tomorrow. Isn't it interesting that sometimes what brings you to that breaking point where you're ready to actually seek the face of God is simply that you don't want to lose your job tomorrow. What brings you to that breaking point sometimes is simply that your wife said, you know what, that's it, I'm out. Tomorrow morning when I wake up, I'm moving all my stuff and I'm getting out. That might be enough to push you to your breaking point. Maybe, hopefully. <laughs> I mean, it, it would be sad to say that that ain't enough. <laughs> you know what I mean? Dang! God's, if that's not enough, God's looking at, what more do I got to do? <laughs> and not that God did that. Yeah. What I'm saying is sometimes God allows the engine to go out. He don't fix the engine Mm -hmm. because he's trying to bring you to your breaking point, bring you to the place of desperation where you're ready to actually turn to him with all of your heart. All Jacob wanted, if God would have just come and said, okay, your brother's not going to kill you tomorrow. Jacob would have been like, whew. But God had more in store for Jacob in in that moment. Like, God's intention in drawing Jacob to that moment was not simply to answer his low prayer of not dying tomorrow. Some of us, that's all we want is just don't die tomorrow. But God actually changed his whole identity. Like, you're different now. You're going to leave when you cross the Jordan to, to join your family tomorrow morning? You're going to be a different person. Yeah, your brother's not going to kill you. You got that. Matter of fact, God didn't even tell him that. It was like just implicit, like, <laughs> you're a prince of God now. You're, not, you're no longer a swindler. You're no longer a hustler. Meaning, after God broke his hip, dislocated his hip, the character of his life was radically different from that moment on. Now, instead of living by his own power as a matter of course, he lives by God's power. Now his life is no longer characterized by what he can do for himself. His life is now characterized by what God can do for him. And this is what God is trying to do in each and every one of our lives. Bring us to the place where we no longer walk by sight, but we walk by faith. Where we no longer make decisions by what seems logical and reasonable, but we make decisions by the faith that God gives us in specific situations. I I had dinner with a couple. I'm not going to mention their names because they didn't give me permission to tell the story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. And you you just have to guess who it is. But... (laughs) (laughs) But I had dinner with a couple recently and they were praying about moving out of the Bay Area and they felt like that was what they wanted to do and they had thought about it and they were making all these plans on this this line and and one morning the husband woke up and he looked at the wife and the wife had been applying for jobs. She had just finished a degree program and she had been applying for jobs in all these different places and they thought that God was gonna move them to this particular location and that's what they desired and that's what they wanted and they were making all these plans around it and one morning the husband woke up and all of a sudden he just knew, he just knew in his heart that God was saying, no, you're going to stay here in the Bay Area. And so he told his wife, he said, no, it's going to be here in the Bay Area. God's, I just feel it in my heart. Like, he was, wasn't even saying God said. Like, he didn't even have a visitation from heaven. It was just a knowledge that was so deep in his heart, he couldn't explain it. He just said, no, 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 God's going to open a door here in the Bay Area. And then they went and they signed a, long, they signed a lease on an apartment and got a new place in the Bay Area. Like, I mean, like, they made plans around their faith. And guess what happened? The Lord opened a door right up the street, right across the street. Like his wife and and the other places where they thought they were moving said no. But the one here in the Bay Area said yes. And it was across the street from where they moved to. It was completely illogical. But faith and logic are not always reconcilable. And they're not always opposed either. Don't get me wrong. It's not like you can figure out what God wants if you just think of what's illogical. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, this don't make no sense. It must be God. (laughs) You know what I mean? That's called foolishness. (laughs) (laughs) Like making decisions like that. (laughs) I ain't got no money. I think I'm going to buy a new car. (laughs) It don't make sense. It must be faith. (laughs) Nah. Nah. That's not how it works. The path of least resistance is not always the path of most obedience. Clarity is often the fruit of adversity. The promise of adversity and trial is brokenness and surrender. And that's why Paul said, I can rejoice in my weakness. Mm -hmm. And that's why James said, count it pure joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Let patience have its perfect work so that you might be perfect and complete, not lacking anything. And this is the simplicity. I told you it was a simple message. I'm almost done. How you like that? (laughs) You think I was going to go for another 30, 40 minutes, didn't you? (laughs) Matter of fact, just to prove I'm not, I need a musician to come to the keyboard right now. There you go. Thank you. What was I saying? Here's the simplicity of the message. You can actually participate, cooperate with God by as an act of your will stimulating the engines of your prayer life you see sometimes we wrestle against God God's trying to wake up our faith and we're wrestling to keep it turned off and we do and, and then we're wrestling with Satan like he's trying to destroy our faith and we're just cooperating with that process and how do we do that by complaining doubting Accusing. when you allow thoughts in your minds, and heart, like God doesn't hear me. God doesn't care about me. God doesn't answer me. God doesn't care about me. God doesn't hear me. I remember I, just a couple of years ago, I went and I did this retreat. And, and at the beginning, I, I, I heard the Lord tell me to call out this, this one young man. And I, I just, I pointed at him. I said, I just need you to come here. And he came up and I said, this is what I just hear the Lord saying to you. Why do you keep saying that I don't hear you? Why do you say that I don't hear you, that I don't answer you? I've inscribed you on the palm of my hand. He who touches you touches the apple of of my eye. I've counted every tear that's come from your eye. And this young man just broke and was crying and crying and crying and crying. And they told me afterwards, members of his small group said, for the last two years, every week he has said in his small group meeting, I don't know why, but God doesn't hear me. God doesn't answer me. He hears other people, but he doesn't hear me. Like God is so desperate to break that lie that somehow you're different than others, that he hears others, but he doesn't hear you. He cares about others, but he doesn't care about you. God wants to break that lie off of your life. You don't realize that if you imbibe that lie and if you host that lie, you are cooperating with the work of Satan to steal from you and to kill you and destroy you. And you're wrestling against God. one of the primary ways that you defeat that lie of the devil is through thankfulness. You realize that every time we get blessed we're satisfied for five minutes and every time something goes wrong we're mad about it for five years. Some of us in this room are still bitter about stuff that happened when we were children and we're already, we've already lost our thankfulness for stuff that happened yesterday. Our bitterness tends to have a far longer shelf life than our thanksgiving. And that's why we're so miserable. Because in bitterness, we're submitting to Satan. In thanksgiving, we're submitting to God. Thanksgiving is the act of prolonging your satisfaction. Do you realize that you can eat the most fabulous meal of your life and wake up tomorrow and be over? Unless you wake up tomorrow and re stimulate your Thanksgiving. If you remember that meal with Thanksgiving, you prolong the experience of the satisfaction of it. The scripture says, "Where there's no vision, the people perish." Another translation says, "Where there's no revelation, the people cast off restraint." It simply means that until you reveal yourself to us, there's no discipline. The Lord so often the trial is the means by which you scream to us. The tribulation is a revelation, because in the tribulation you are revealing yourself to us as the only one we need the tribulation, you are standing before us and shouting, God, who said, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am the Lord and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. The word has gone forth from my mouth and shall not return, that before me every knee will bow, and every tongue will swear an oath. God, we declare today, we acknowledge today that one day our knees are going to bow, and one day our tongues are going to confess. One day we are going to see you in your glory and recognize that you are the one that we needed, but the one that we turned away from. God, I pray that that day would be today. For each and every one of us in this place, I pray that that day would be today. That as an act of our own will, we bow our knee and confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. means that the trial is an opportunity to discover you fresh and new, for our eyes to be opened, to come to the end of our rope, because we must come to the end of our rope before we come to the beginning of yours. Father, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Awaken our hearts and minds to the truth that prayer is not the fruit of maturity, it's the fruit of desperation. Some of us think, I can't pray very well because I'm just not very mature in Christ and I need to grow in Him. And what we don't recognize is you can be saved for 20 years and still not know how to pray. Because, not because you're not mature, but because you're not yet desperate. Because you see God as an add-on to your already successful life. Instead of the source of living water, the one that you need. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would awaken within us our desperation of you. strengthen each and every heart in the midst of each and since the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Bless me now, my Savior. Bless me now, my Savior, I come to you. It means, God, if you don't bless me, I have no blessing. If you don't provide for me, I have no provision. If you don't set me free, I'll be in bondage for the rest of my life. I need you, God. Precious Heavenly Father, break us free in the place where our desperation has been locked up by the lie of the enemy, where we can't even feel, we can't even experience that we need you because we've been lied to by the devil. We've been lied to by the devil. We've been lied to by the devil. The devil has lied to us and told us that we just need to figure it out on our own. The devil has lied to us and said, you can still fix it. If you try a little harder, you can still fix it. We're still on our boat with our buckets trying to to save the boat. Trying to scoop the water out of the boat by our own power. Some of us are still sitting here thinking, if I could just call this person and say this to him, I could fix it with them. If I could just do this with my finances, I could fix it. If I could just get a second job and work a little later, I can fix it. I can fix it if I'm just nicer to my husband, I can fix it. I can fix it if I'm just a little bit more patient with my wife, I can fix it. I can fix it. I can fix it. That's a lie of the devil. You can't fix it, but God can fix it. God can fix it. God can fix it. Lord, I need you. Stimulate every heart. Motivate every heart. Let there be a decision made in every heart today. I'm going to put everything that I have on one side of the river. And I'm not going to sleep tonight until me and God have this out. Holy Spirit, release that holy desperation in every I in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Stand up on your feet. Go ahead and give God a shout of praise.